0: This is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Yesterday we did a a sort of an impromptu mini podcast on a Twitter space, you know, called Twitter Spaces. And I've been a little confused about whether you use the plural or the or the singular. But basically that's where you do a basically it is a live audio broadcast on the Twitter platform. And then if you're on Twitter, you can, you know, kind of join and listen to it. And they have it set up where, you know, if you want to, you can have, you know, bring bring people on to ask questions and all that kind of stuff. So we did that yesterday. And um, if you were one of the listeners and heard about our podcast for the first time, and this is the first time you're listening, well, you know, welcome to the welcome to the Josh Marshall podcast. Uh, we're the co-hosts. I'm Josh Marshall. Uh, Kate Riga is my co-host. We're going to talk to Kate in a minute. You know, what we're we're gonna do today is we're gonna dive right back into what we were talking about yesterday and that is you know it's 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 hard it's really hard right now for any issue to uh you know kind of clear the decks of political conversation you know you've got this very uh risky land war uh, in the eastern corner of Europe going on—that is a really big deal. You've got all the things that we were talking about in U.S. domestic politics uh, before. God, I'm losing track. I guess this came out, you know, before Monday. But the row news—that's something that can clear the decks. Maybe not entirely clear the decks of the stuff going on in Ukraine, but but really clear the decks. And, and it was the. It was the big political conversation uh, yesterday, and, and I want to be clear that it's anybody who has been watching this issue closely, that the idea that Roe was going to be overturned this summer is not at all a surprise. It was all but guaranteed. I think the only question was whether you might have something that, in effect, did away with Roe, but didn't technically overturn the decision. And as we learned over the last couple of days, that seems to have been what John Roberts preferred. His, uh, as you know, best we know, his position on this, and we seem to know a fair amount, which is a whole other story we're going to get to. But to the extent we know his position, he was ready to affirm this Mississippi law that put a 15-week limit on legal abortion in the state. And for all sorts of mechanics, that's, that makes abortion almost a nominal right, right? So that wasn't a surprise. And yet, seeing it in sort of black letter, Right, Roe is—I forget the term that you know—the actual word for word that Justice Alito used, uh, something like you know, we judge that Roe must be overturned or is overturned or something like that. You see the actual letters, and it kind of hits with a hits with a bang. And uh, what we didn't completely know, although I think it was assumed, is that at least this draft version—and it's important to remember this is a draft version from February. Um, and it is certainly conceivable that you, that uh, someone in Alito's position, would start with a very aggressive opinion and then kind of negotiate from there. Not that not that you're going to end up with Roe not being overturned. That's clearly the, the decision. But as Kate and I were talking about yesterday, there's, it's not. The text of that opinion is not even really an analysis and a decision. It's kind of like a dropkick of the original Roe and Casey, uh, reasoning. It's basically just Roe was stupid. It was badly argued. It was bad constitutional reasoning. It was wrong. It fucked up the country. <laughs> it was, and, and, uh, Alito, you know, uh, Again, for those who follow these things, uh, Roe is contained within and expanded a jurisprudence of privacy that gets underway in the middle of the 20th century in the Supreme Court. And it's why you have uh, you, you know, a right to contraception. You can't have laws that's, that you know, make contraception illegal. Same same underlying privacy stuff. It's also, uh, it's also why you have marriage equality. It's all sorts of stuff that have to do with um, reproductive rights, uh, rights of erotic association, matrimonial rights, all come down to this thing. And in the, in the uh, decision, Alito basically just says, that was all bogus. That whole thing was bogus. All that privacy stuff never really existed. The court made it up. It was wrong. Now, they don't have within this case a a foothold to say, to say that as a conclusive statement to overturn all those other decisions I'm talking about. But the decision as written makes pretty clear that the five justices who seem to be on board with this opinion all those things are gone. So it's very aggressive. Again, it is, some of it, 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 it it's a little hard to describe. It, it is, um, if you read uh, Supreme Court decisions over the years, um, and I mean over many decades, the Supreme Court, even when it wants to overturn a decision, often they will find their way to overturning the decision through the paths that the old jurisprudential reasoning had set forth. So, for instance, when Brown versus Board of Education overturned Plessy, it basically got there, you know, got to overturning it by operating within a lot of the Plessy reasoning. you know. Plessy, basically, I mean, a, a, I think a, a good historical way of overturning Plessy would be to say, the amendments are clear. You can't, you, you can't have separate but equal. It, says, it's, it, it really says just as clear as day, you can't do that. The Warren court came at it, well, okay, separate but equal, got it. That's the thing. But it turns out separate is inherently unequal. Right, so, so this, this, this kind of way of you, you, you keep it, you keep everything sort of evolutionary, even when substantively you're, you're going in a, in, a, in a very different direction. That was not Alito's approach. It was basically, if you read the, if you read the text, it's basically, uh, you know, kind of like in, in professional wrestling, it's like a body slam. It's kind of, you know, this is over. I'm going to take you out, throw you up in the air, and slam you down on the ground. So um, you know everybody's uh, trying to make sense of that, and I and I think you know seeing it in the black letter and seeing that the opinion is really as aggressive as almost I think anybody could have imagined. Um, and you know maybe maybe there was some negotiation on the margins, you know, since then. But I think what we can, the reason we can tell there has not been much is what we found out about, uh, where Roberts is now, not in February, that he wants something that is a little more, uh, incremental and minimalist. You know, usually you can find all sorts of different ways to come at these questions. You can find ways, and clearly Roberts, uh, thought he had found a way to, uh, affirm this Mississippi law, but not overturn Roe. And what seems clear is, is that those five, no, they want to overturn Roe completely. So everything we know tells us almost to a certainty that that is where those five are. So it's a done deal it's a done deal possible. There's some differences in the language and stuff like that. Um, but it's a done deal. And, and the timeline on something like this is probably that decision comes out in like June, something like that. So, you know, six weeks, maybe as, 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 as much as eight weeks possibly at the outside. So, so very soon. Um, and, uh, you know, that's is where we are. And, and, and I think as we saw yesterday, uh, Republicans, you know, Justice Alito wants to jump up and down, but most Republican elected officials, they don't really want to talk about it. You know, it doesn't, it, they've got their win, right? They, they've, they've used the, that win on the horizon for four or five decades to, uh, you know, to charge up Republican voters, uh, Christian, you know, kind of uh, evangelical voters over this. But now they got it. So like, you know, there, there, there's, there's, it, there's, there's no uh, plus side in focusing on it, especially when you see the polls that show that when, peop- when, when people are asked, should you get rid of Roe? Should you get rid of those rights? Period. Not like we're going to, you know, there's this one kind of really icky procedure you can do in the, in the third trimester and are you against that? Are you, are you, do you want to get rid of Roe? The polls are sort of like 70 to 30. On that it's not popular um so what republicans want to do is they want to talk about this leak which is you know i i noticed um noticed over the last 24 hours or so that they have quickly coalesced not only is it like the biggest outrage in history it's an insurrection it's a judicial insurrection it's it's treasonous you know, and the reality is, I mean, I guess uh, you know, John Roberts is they're going to do an investigation with, I guess, you know, the Supreme Court has their own little mini police force, and they're going to do an investigation. And they can do that, obviously, and and you know, in a in a in a professional and workplace context, it's a huge breach. There's no question about that. Um, you know, in a functional sense, maybe maybe you can think it was the right thing to do, but in a in a you know, just in a workplace context, you have professional confidences blah 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 blah. but this isn't like it's this isn't like you know classified information it's not like you can go to jail for this this, this there's no different from like if if you in your workplace like took a memo and showed it to someone it's there's no there's no laws about it you can be fired but you know whatever uh so we're going to talk about all that before we do if you can't handle the heat get back to the kitchen because with a glass of Grady's New Orleans style cold brew in your hand, I, I know I'm kind of, this is kind of a sharp transition from uh, <laughs> from the end of row to uh, Grady's copy. So I, 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 for everybody's benefit, I should have uh, uh, buffered it a little bit. But anyway, here we are. Uh, because with a glass of Grady's New Orleans style cold brew in your hand, you'll be ready to tackle whatever sweaty situations pop up this summer. If your previous attempts at cold brewing were messy, bitter, or bland, don't worry. Grady's makes cold brewing consistent, easy and mess-free. Their bean bag cold brew kit provides everything you need to make the perfect cup of iced coffee at home. And there's no need to buy any special coffee gadgets. You can brew it right inside the Grady's store and pour pouch and enjoy tasty iced coffee all summer long. Summer-proof your fridge today at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM to save 25% off. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com. Use promo code TPM to save 25% off. Okay, Kate Riga, where are one, you know, we've had a a, a, a one whole day when we were going over this yesterday and now we're on day two. Where are we?
1: Yeah, I think we should talk about, as you kind of uh, mentioned in your intro, the, the language of the opinion before we move on to the content and the leak and everything. And the language, it's funny because in some ways it is completely predictable based on the very limited data set we have. And then in some ways it's this huge break in the conventional wisdom of just a few months ago. Because pre-oral argument, truly the leading thought was they're going to kill Roe by a thousand cuts, you know. And that theory made a lot of sense because red states have had great success all but ending abortion in their states already through things like, you know, trap laws, like mandating that abortion providers have to jump through all these hoops and have hospital admitting privileges and that things as granular as, you know, counter height within the clinics. And that has been really successful. That's how we have huge swaths of the country where there's only one clinic to serve an entire state's population.
0: And like Um, a massive state when like in one city you have one, but for your average person, it's like, okay, five hour drive. And then you've got to come back the second day. And also in practice in a lot of America, there are no abortion rights even now.
1: Exactly. And- how that was done was actually pretty ingenious. And granted, for a long time, states couldn't really pass these bans because before we had this this court, it was just kind of, you know, you were going to get struck down by a lower court and that's that. Whereas they could get around it with these trap laws. But it worked really well because it also attracts basically no media attention because it's boring. You know, requirements on doctors and clinics like that's a snooze. You're not going to have a headline that's you must use this kind of cleaning product in an abortion clinic. Um, so I think it f- it flowed from that the idea that the court would weaken and defang Roe in a way that was kind of boring, kind of procedural, damaging but over the long term. And then we had the oral arguments in December, and all of that went out the window. You know, John Roberts was the only one even kind of dithering over the 15 week question, which is the, which is the details of the ban that this case is about. The other justices didn't even pretend the conservatives, you know, they were very candid in treating this case like the opportunity to overturn Roe that it was, even then. And I think that was a big shift because I don't think it was crazy to think that the justices would be concerned about electoral backlash should they just wipe out Roe all at once. And, you know, they're so tightly at this point bound to Republican politics and politicians that that's not, um, you know, an off-base thing to think. But just went out the window. And then we get this text. And like you say, you know, caveats abound. Okay. It's a, it's a draft from February. We know that Alito, who's not exactly known for his, you know, temperance is the one who wrote it. And we don't know that even the other justices who voted along with him in conference, we don't know that they've signed off on this language. So we might end up getting something more tempered as the final decision. But this document is just, it's a victory lap. There's nothing in it that is Seeks to soften the blow. There's not. There's really not much in it for people who are kind of concerned on the knock-on effects. I would say that periodically he'll. It's almost like he has a post-it on his computer and he'll remind himself to be like, "Oh, but other privacy rights are fine. Like, don't worry about it. This is not going to take away all your rights, even though the the logic there is completely specious and and missing. You know, if all the rights flow from the same place, what's your intellectual grounding for saying that? Um, but it's just you know, heaped up with sympathy for the anti-abortion movement, just full of it. And then all the stuff on the other side is so callous. You know, there's one line where he says women are not without electoral and political power, which is like, okay, one of our nine kings who dictates all of human rights for this country. Thank you for saying that, you know, I have a vote in D.C. Um, But, you know, it's just any... Yeah. Any of that idea that they would seek to have this fly under the radar to avoid the potential electoral backlash or, you know, back at a time when everyone was still talking about the integrity of the court where they would be concerned about that. That's gone out the window. So and now, you know, we can talk about the parlor game of you know, who leaked it, what side is it better for? But at this point, we've got this document. And when we get the final document, a lot of the reporting is going to be how did it change? Right. But we have this textual item. So I just I think that it was important and it was striking even reading it that there is no attempt to not rub salt on the wounds here. This is just a dancing on the battlefield of dead bodies.
0: One one thing that occurred to me and one of the what what seemed more persuasive to me over time that the logic of, you know, the the immediate assumption, I think almost everybody was that this was a, you know, one of the clerks of one of the, uh, you know, Democratic appointed justices, or I've always thought that less, too little attention has gone to, you know, there's support staff. I don't know how many, but like I guarantee you, it's not like the clerks are, you know, running the computer network and stuff like that. So there's other people who, who, who could potentially have access, but that was the original assumption. Uh, but over time, a number of former clerks make the argument, the real, the, the real impact of this is that it makes it really hard to depart from this opinion because you've kind of said this is the law this is the fact and and especially if um you know this is why they don't want the the opinions leaked it's supposed to kind of come down from on high right you know when when god delivered the ten commandments it would be it would kind of it, it, it would kind of break the magic if you find out that there was 11 commandments first, and then he did it like a rewrite, right? Um, and it's, it's, you know, that's kind of the, that's sort of the razzmatazz that the court operates in. Uh, and for, you know, for how much the conservative legal movement has put into getting to this moment, that is kind of like, you know, that's the maximal thing. And if you come out with something a little more mealy-mouthed, then it's going to be, what happened? You know, why'd you guys go soft? You know, what, What? What? so I, I think the, the reality is there's, we just have no idea who did this. And I don't think we have any way of finding out who did this unless they tell us, you know, the person comes forward and, 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 and tells us. I think the logical impact of this is to firm up the extremity of that opinion. And so I think there is a good argument that it is more likely than not that it was someone who was favorable to this opinion. But we don't know the person that the person who leaked had any idea what the impact would be. It's entirely plausible that that you know the sort of the brainiac Harvard law A graduate clerk of either, you know, of a Democratic or Republican justice was clueless about, you know, kind of near-term political impact. So, so we just have no idea. One point I want to come back to, though, about the decision itself, and again, this really strikes me is that I, I mentioned before about arguing within the existing paths, even if you're charting a new path, and you know the 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 privacy doctrine is very complicated but one key part of it is the 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 people who developed this jurisprudence again in the middle of the 20th century basically said that there are all these different constitutional protections about your you know right you don't you don't have to incriminate yourself you have protections against um you, you know just flagrant searches there has to be, you know, you, you, you need due process if the government is going to come and look at your stuff. Uh, the government can't, can't punish you in a cruel and unusual way. All these, lots of, and those are only a few of the things. All these different things, basically, you put them together and it's saying that we treat individuals as having a kind of a sanctity. And the government can't just kind of grab you and snap you in half like a stick because it wants to you have this sort of um you know kind of bodily and you know bodily autonomy and that and what is that that means there's kind of like a privacy you have some you have some shield against what the government can do to you not an absolute shield but a shield and that's where that's where this, this privacy jurisprudence comes from. And again, it's much more complicated. There, there's arguments I'm not even getting into the arguments about the Fourteenth Amendment, blah 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 blah. Generally speaking, that's kind of how you get there. And there are ways many very smart people, uh, people, you know, uh, judges, uh, legal academics, have made arguments why that is not good reasoning you could, you know, and there's all sorts of different ways that you kind of take it on its own terms. Because again, when you understand it, it's not crazy. It actually, it's clear that the constitution does carve out a space like that for the individual. But what struck me is Alito's thing was basically, yeah, no, that's bogus. That's not there and like done and done, which you know, okay, that you can, that maybe that's your final decision, but you, you kind of owe it to everybody to, to make a, an argument on its own terms, why that does not wash. And it's not impossible to do. A lot of smart people have done it. Um, there's actually a, uh, a book by a guy named John Hart Ely, who, uh, died many years ago. It's a book named democracy and distrust. And, and uh, one of the early footnotes, um, Uh, alito actually he's footnoted ely is footnoted in in i can't remember if it's the democracy and distrust book or one of his articles anyway this guy is uh ely is a very famous uh constitutional thinker who died at a relatively young age you know a few decades ago the point is there are smart people who've made these arguments and alito didn't even feel the need to make the argument just like no and no. And like I said, kind of, you know, put you up over my head, spin you around and then throw you down onto the mat. Um, And, you know, and there we are.
1: Yeah. And what I think is an interesting juxtaposition that's in the text is at the same time that, like you say, he's kind of clawing back this personal autonomy, right. And spends a lot of time saying there's you know there's no historical basis for this in our country which is kind of a whole other can of worms to get into but while he's making that argument he's making the parallel argument for fetal personhood so basically saying that kind of you know grown born humans do not have this right yet a fetus has all these rights you know and he's really not particularly subtle about this and you know got to say The reason this is important is because anti-abortion activists have largely coalesced behind fetal personhood under the 14th Amendment as their best legal pathway to outlawing abortion nationwide. So the fact that he... I mean, he uses the word personhood uh, straight out in some points. In his historical section, he slips in a little argument that perhaps fetal personhood was enshrined in the law of the 19th century. Um, He talks about how viability is a totally arbitrary line for when a fetus becomes a person. And, you know, the logical extension of that is, so why can't it be? at the point of conception, you know, which would undergird the fetal personhood idea. So that is smattered throughout this kind of... And he does this other kind of insidious thing where he keeps uh, using the phrase, you know, unborn child, but he's saying, or as the law before us puts it, and then it infuses all this anti-abortion language in there. And that has been a part of this crusade for years anti-abortion activists are slowly kind of alighting the idea of fetus and child bringing them closer and closer and closer together and using little rhetor- rhetorical flourishes like unborn child or uh, you know potential life it's in the same playbook as their other stuff of calling abortion murder, you know, Alito also uses the word abortionist to talk about abortion providers, which at this point has become so freighted in that same anti-abortion world that it carries those same connotations. So he is making very clear that at the same time that he's pretty happy to claw back the civil right, he's also all for giving way more rights to the fetus. And that's really important. And I think the biggest question we're kind of left with at, at this point is, how many of the other four who voted with him endorse this fetal personhood language? Because we we don't know if those four have signed on to this version of the draft or we know that they voted with him, but right, we don't know right. that they've signed off on all the language. So if they have, you know, and you can pretty safely say at this point that Clarence Thomas also endorses fetal personhood. He had another concurrent opinion in 2019 where he was talking about the eugenics stuff, but he referred to it as Racial genocide, so that that shows it pretty clearly, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's obviously not a stretch to think that Barrett probably does. But we just don't have a lot of data points for where they come down on fetal personhood.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm still a little unclear, and I, I think this is just we don't know. My sense was, and I'm trying to think mm-hmm. if I if I if I know this or this was just the sense I got when the article when the when that piece dropped on Mon- Monday night. Um, My sense was that they were tentatively on board with this language. I mean, it's not final because it's not the final draft, but I don't. I got the sense, and again, maybe this is just not true. I got the sense that um, it's not just that five of them agreed to overturn Roe and they just said, you know, Alito, write something up. We'll see what we think, right? Go I nuts. Think, yeah, <laughs> I think it was a little more than that, that this was, you know, that that they had, um, you know, were generally on board with, with this kind of opinion. Obviously, there are, it, it's, it's, um, I'm not up on, you know, the exact practices they have and I was never an expert on them. But it's not like it doesn't work like, well, we had the vote, you know, back in back in March and it's done. Sorry, sorry, uh, uh Neil Gorsuch. It, there's lots of cases in history where kind of something seems to decide everybody's on board, and then there's some kind of, you know, kind of uh, back channel conversations between the justices and someone says, you know what? I am, um, I I no, I I changed my mind. Um You the things change over over um, over time, and uh, yeah, I mean the there's two things. The look there is a there is an intellectually coherent argument that says, you know, you can be totally pro-abortion rights, but the Constitution just does not address abortion. And 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 you know you can't get there. The, 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 those arguments about privacy and stuff—that's just not how the Constitution should be interpreted. So the court just has no—you know—the court has no legitimate way into this discussion. Ergo, Roe was a bad decision. You get rid of you get rid of Roe. I'm not saying I agree with that, but there's a coherent argument you can make there. But this stuff about fetal personhood—that's at least as alien to the Constitution as you know a, a right to privacy is. I guarantee you that doesn't come up. That's that, that is it, the whole. Um, I mean, for what it's worth, to the extent that it is relevant, this whole idea of is a is a fetus a legal person at conception? No one in the 1790s would have any idea what you were talking about if you said that partly because they just didn't think in those terms. Also, they just didn't have the scientific knowledge. So it, it's all nonsense. It is all totally alien to the Constitution if you are going to take that perspective, that we need to deal with things that the Constitution either explicitly deals with or that we know that they were in a conversation about at the time when they wrote when they wrote certain language. The other thing, though, is... Alito keeps coming back to, uh, if you know, he basically says, if you're going to make up new things, they've got to be in the history and tradition of America. Um, and then a thing about, and, and with an implicit in the, con- in the concept of ordered liberty. Now, that phrase ordered liberty goes back a, a long way, but it's taken on very specific meanings in the late 20th century on the right. Uh, but again, history and tradition, you know, the American history and tradition, that's just another, that's another made up thing that, that, you know, that that, that, that certainly, that's certainly not in the constitution, history and tradition. Um, And uh, again, that's just another kind of, that's another made up thing that as he describes it is highly elastic in its meaning. And my take on this was basically, you know, it is kind of, it's almost like a, a new version of like a grandfather clause, kind of like if it was icky in 1930, don't bring it into the conversation in 2020, right? The kind of, you know, sort of tradition is, it's a traditionalist argument masquerading as an originalist argument. There's an originalist argument to be made, but the traditionalist argument is at least as made up as the privacy stuff is.
1: Yeah. And I think an interesting thing about this is thinking about how the conservative justices have long kind of communicated with the anti-abortion movement in their writings. You know, Clarence Thomas does this all the time. There'll be years where you have kind of single Thomas dissents where he's communicating I'm open to this and more, you know, get it on my desk kind of thing. And now Thomas is in the majority. So those things are reaching his desk. And it's interesting to me to look at this text as that communication device, you know, because now it's not just lone dissents or kind of law articles. It's a majority opinion that's knocking down this 50 year right. And within it, is providing a blueprint for the anti-abortion kind of legal world to be like, and here's what you should do next. And we'll be down with that because five of us have signed on to this. You know, it, it's just, it's quite brazen. Everything about it is brazen in a way that the court hasn't really been operating until recently, until they got this super majority and really have seen to ad- adopt the attitude of, they don't need to make particularly rigorous arguments. You know, it doesn't have to be really textually based or historically based. They just kind of throw around the parlance and make their decisions, if that. I mean, or they just use the shadow shadow docket and do what they want. So, mm-hmm, I, I mm-hmm. mean, it's all of a piece, but these are just, I think, the largest stakes we've seen so far.
0: Yeah, I mean, as, as long as we're sort of, you know, sort of piling on with Alito, one of the other things that, that jumped out to me is, you know, there's this doctrine stare decisis, which is, it's a mispronounced Latin, Latin phrase. And it basically means all things being equal, you let precedent stand. You, 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 you try to avoid overturning precedents because there is a, a broader stability of the law that every there's precedents and you don't just go on doing them and how, and how, how much that's a priority is, you know, those are the devils in the details, but that's the, that's the doctrine. And, uh, at, At one point, he addresses, uh, Alito uh, addresses the stare decisis argument, kind of like, hey, this is settled law, 50 years. Like, maybe you don't agree with it, but whatever. And he basically says, well, you got to understand what stare decisis really says. And he basically goes on to redefine it as if there's a precedent, well, you got to go back and make sure the precedent makes sense. And if it makes sense, then then you, you know then you keep it. Well, that's not, that's, that is, that is definitely not what it says. It, it, the whole point is, it is a, a sort of a prudential argument that you don't look that closely. You kind of say, look, it's been around a long time. So we're going to set a really high bar for, for changing that. And he just kind of defines, you know, he just sort of defines that out of uh um, defines that out of existence, and again, for you know, for what it's worth, when we talked before about the way that the Supreme Court, when the Supreme Court overturns a big precedent, they usually do it within the reasoning of the of the of the opinions they are undoing, and the reason for that again is stare decisis—that you know, we're gonna, yeah, we're overturning it, but we're gonna we're going to sort of do it within the, you know, within those. So again, a a, a prudential respect for, uh, it's not tradition exactly, it's precedent, precedent, which is, you know, there's there's a lot in there. You know, it's good to be the king and they're the king now and they can do whatever they want. And that's kind of, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing.
1: So let's talk about kind of the political side of this for a minute. We already briefly talked about that Republicans have all coalesced behind being outraged about the leak as kind of the biggest breach in an institution, you know, in our lifetimes and really, really not being interested in talking about the content of the decision um, for reasons we already kind of discussed. I saw that a Newsmax anchor last night said that and his a professional opinion. He thinks it was probably Katanji Brown Jackson behind the leak, which is just excellent. It's like, yeah, she probably hasn't even been in the building yet, but it was probably her, you know, for for reasons he can't figure out. He can't divine. She just she seems suspicious for some right, reason, right, you know. Right, right, right. Um, but so is this. Do you expect the Republican playbook to kind of hew to these lines, just this insistence on talking about the leak? Or is there going to become some point where they just can't help themselves, where they they do celebrate this? way? You
0: know, I, my sense is that I think this issue is so big that at the end of the day, it does not matter much. The, the You know, you could like, maybe the Republicans are going to win this leak argument. I saw a lot of people saying that like yesterday. Oh, they're going to, they're going to... um you know, make this into a win- winning issue by winning the leak argument. Well, you know, I think they can win the leak argument, whatever that means. And it just doesn't matter. It's so, it is so central that that is just gonna, that's a kind of a, an asterisk, a minor footnote to this whole thing. I I think that the, what it is, the the role that it is playing right now is that This is, you know, this is the news. This is the news in American domestic politics. Everybody's asking about it. Everybody's talking about it. So Republicans are constantly getting asked about it and they need something to say. And they, their preference would be, I mean, look, they're already winning the midterm. They've got inflation. They've got, you know, uh, critical race theory, all the different things they're talking about and they're winning. So they don't want this. They don't want to talk about this. Um, and so the leak thing gives when someone says, "What do you?" Well, the leak. Ah, oh, blah blah blah. It it just, it just sort of um, as a politician, you never wanna you never want to just be running from the reporters, or running from the cameras. And this is giving them something to say. So it's sort of it's sort of a placeholder since they don't want to talk about the substance. Uh, but really, I don't think any of that matters because again. Yeah people have very strong feelings about this. And that's that's the real issue.
1: Yeah. And I think it, it does stem from this idea that Republicans have in the past successfully kind of hijacked conversations and made it about procedure. And that really preys on a weakness of especially, uh, you know, congressional reporters, because they know a lot about the procedure and the procedure is interesting to them. So it's easy to get caught up in. And, you know, in this case, who leaked it is like pretty interesting. It's not super important but it's interesting um but oh, i agree with you. It's a
0: classic you. dc parlor game it's exactly. fascinating to think about what the what the thinking was of whoever did it what they were trying to accomplish what the consequences for them might be and i i would say they're pretty severe um uh you know a, a clerk it it certainly i mean if it is a you know a democratic clerk to you to speak kind of awkwardly about it. Uh, It is certainly true that that person would probably become a folk hero among progressives, but I guarantee you their career as, you know, at the, at, at the highest level of, uh, you know, clerking and the legal academy is, it would be done, totally done. So the consequences are vast and like, maybe you want to be a folk hero, but like if you spent you know, uh, uh, you know, years getting the grades that you need to get in college to get into the law schools that get you one of these gigs, you didn't do it to be to, to, you know, to, to, uh, you know, there was that woman a number of years ago who, uh, I think she worked for Planned Parenthood and, and she did some congressional testimony. It had to do with reproductive rights and she became sort of a cause celeb. Now I can't even remember her name. The point is the professional consequences are vast even though there'd be a period of folk heroism, And at the end of the day, as I think we know for all the other reasons, the week doesn't matter that much. It's right. like a six-week head start.
1: And also it's funny because with the folk hero thing, like, if it is a liberal clerk, that is a way in which the political media asymmetry just would not serve that person. The way that if you're kind of a folk hero on the right, you know, you get to be Kyle Rittenhouse and you're on Fox all the time, and now maybe you'll run for Congress, and like you're kind of set. You know, at the very least, you could do the diamond your own, and silk thing and have a YouTube channel, or Talk exactly. radio
0: show, and you, you're going to be you're going to be making a nice six figures six figure salary, at least for the rest of your life, just milking that forever. Whereas on the other side, I mean, there's some of that, you know, there's some of that people get, you know, people, but, but like basically after six months, you're done. Right. And you're you're back to being just you.
1: Yeah. But yeah, I think that the driving force of this is even though the procedural stuff is interesting and kind of, you know, wonky and there's always that, what if it was a justice, you know, it just, the news is so high wattage that it, It'll it eclipses. Yeah, it it's, eclipses it's, the
0: leak. And 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 you know, one of the for it to go beyond the the status quo ante on abortion rights, in which, as we said, there are in in practice no abortion rights in large parts of the, of the United States. Um, when you talk about in practice, can a woman without a lot of financial means? easily access an, a, you know, a, 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 a legal abortion, you know, within an hour's drive. Lots of the country does not, you know, doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't have that anymore. Um, for it for it to get into the electoral realm, you have to have a significant number of people who, you know, uh, maybe I wasn't going to vote, maybe I was, or maybe like, eh, I'm kind of down on Biden. Maybe, you know, get a little, uh, get a little uh, checks and balances on him by, uh, you know, voting for a Republican that you get. If you do, do you get a significant portion of voters that say, no, I want to, I want this abortion thing to be done and we're going to codify Roe and, and, and whatever. That's a big question, and that is a question that is you know either really going to define this midterm or it's not, and the leak is just not right. Doesn't matter.
1: So let's talk briefly about kind of what Democrats are doing and what they can do before uh, before we move to questions. So we have had, I think, a, a pretty systemic Democratic expression of outrage since the leak happened. You know, we got. Schumer-Pelosi statement right away. We got the White House's statement the next day. We have Elizabeth Warren kind of joining the, the protesters in front of the Supreme Court. Um, now we have Schumer announced that they're going to hold what kind of amounts to a symbolic vote on uh, a bill that would codify Roe, which will be filibustered. And even if it wouldn't be filibustered, probably wouldn't even have the votes among Democrats to pass. Um But we're also now starting to see the kind of inevitable flood of think pieces about will this galvanize Democratic voters for the midterms? Will they harness this energy? You know, how will uh, candidates kind of loop it into their campaigning and all that? So, you know, where are you standing on that side of things?
0: Well, uh, I can't predict the future, but. I feel like I know about as well as I know anything that if you are going to have this galvanized Democrats, if you're going to have it be a potential game changer in terms of the midterms, you need to right now have the president and the congressional leaders say something like this. If we hold the House in November and add two seats in the Senate in January, we will pass a law codifying row, period. Now, to do that, you need to, I I think I I said in a few posts uh, yesterday and then today, um, you've got two different issues. One is you need uh, 50 senators who will vote for a Roe codifying uh, law. And I think to make that uh, doable, you, you, you don't do, you know, Roe is not a statute, but you basically need to make it Roe as it existed in, you know, one year ago. And that word, cause once you open, cause that wasn't great, but to get everybody on board, that's how you have to, I think that's how you have to do it. Um, You need to, you need, you need 50 for that. You need 50 for, to amend the filibuster so you can do it with 50 votes. So those are two things you need 50 on. And it's not entirely clear to me whether that means you need to add two senators or three, I think probably two, but again, in the caucus, you don't have to guess you just do a head count. Who's on board with this? Who's on board with that? And then you get it down to hold the house, add two Senate seats. Again, maybe you find out it's three, then it's three. But you find out what it is and you say, and the president says, if I get those two things in January, 2023, we are passing the law. We're going to pass it within the first week of the next Congress. I don't know if that's going to, and th- those, are both, those are both heavy lifts in this political climate. So I'm not saying I know it's going to work, but I'm sure it won't work if you don't make it that clear cut, because that takes it out of all like, oh, you know, but we already gave the Democrats the majority and the Democrats, you know, decided not to do anything and all this kind of stuff Or they have, you have the majority, um, you have the majority now, why aren't you doing it now? Well, you don't have the majority, all that kind of stuff. If it's going to be a game changer, you have to do that. Otherwise, it will not be the central issue. It just, it just won't. It'll be important. People will, but, and a lot of it will be the most important issue for a lot of people. But without that clarity, without that specificity about exactly what is required and exactly what the commitment is, it's just not going to break through in the way you would need it to break through to accomplish those two heavy lifts.
1: Yeah, you can almost kind of see campaign signs that are like, hold the House, add two senators, pass abortion rights, you know. Yeah, you
0: know, House plus two, right? I mean, there's lots of ways you can, you got to make it really clear like that.
1: And I think the other thing that will help here, and we discussed this kind of briefly on our, our Twitter conversation, is just there is it's not just a reactive thing. The threat is real. Like we talked about with fetal personhood, this idea that people who have this earnestly held conviction that abortion is murder are going to be like, well, half the country doesn't have it. So that's cool. And we'll just like rest on their laurels is kind of insane. And that contingent will keep pushing the lawmakers and, and judges that are responsive to it. So it's not just, you know, it does have just a very forward looking idea that the threat is real, that it's going to grow, and that this is not the end of it. You need that safety net and I think that helps Democrats be perhaps a little less reactive and like we like we talked about yesterday, Democrats sometimes have this idea that playing off people 's fear is is tawdry that's something that the right wing does that's something that Fox News does but there's also valid, you know, valid fear. That's not just kind of this evangelical white grievance, like pretend victimhood thing. And the idea of having civil rights rolled back, that's a thing that people should be afraid you should of. Be so afraid you harness of. it, yeah. you know?
0: And and yeah, you should be afraid of it. And uh, it is it is incumbent on politicians and elected officials to warn you what's coming. You know, one of the big... You hear this a lot when people talk about, um, you know, Trump, oh, Democrats got, you know, got, uh, you know, self-satisfied because they just had to, you know, they just had the fear of Trump. They didn't have to make an affirmative message. Well, the fear of Trump, avoiding the reality of Trump is, in fact, one of the most central and important things in our politics. It's not some kind of like, oh, you know, you you tried to make fancy food, but you just put a lot of sugar and butter in it to kind of, (laughs) you know, to 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 do it on the cheap or something like that. Fears that are real are entirely legitimate as 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 politics. And and again, with with this now, I have heard some people say, well, what makes you think the Supreme Court won't invalidate that federal law? I think there's a decent chance of it. I think it'll take a while. I don't, think they'll, I don't think they'll be ready to do it right away. But will they, will they move in that direction? They, they may well. There's a very good chance. But then you come back to the Congress can take certain issues out of the court's jurisdiction. The Congress can say these issues are, are being walled off from the Supreme Court. The Congress, the Congress can say we're adding more justices. You know, th- th- there, you, you, I, I, I am always, I always get frustrated and impatient when people, when you, you explain. Well, if you want to change things, you got to do X, and say, well, if you do X, they'll just do Y. You know, it's just very low energy. You know, you can You, you basically, I'm not even going to try because they'll do something and blah, blah 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 blah. That's a that's a loser mentality, and and. Uh, it's, this isn't just a matter of like, you know, kind of, you know, buck up, have a stiff upper lip. There are other options. There are options that have not been, that have not been employed before, that have not been uh, seriously considered, but there are definite, entirely legal, entirely constitutional solutions to that, to that problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I don't think any of this is predicated on pretending that having a federal statute is as good as having a constitutional right, because, it, I mean, it's not. The it next time there's a Republican trifecta, that law could go right out the window. But right now, the options Democrats have are, you know, add a few more senators and pass a law codifying row or add 10 more senators, you know, get rid of the filibuster or keep a filibuster in place, blah, 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 or ask voters to like give you a trifecta and to hold that trifecta until one of the Supreme Court justices dies, which might be, you know, years from now. So of of that menu, this just seems the most campaignable and the most messageable, even if it's an imperfect solution.
0: Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, I mean, that's in our system. That is, you know, if you're feeling powerless, if you're feeling this is unjust, it's, it's unfair. That's the path. And it's not an easy path in this in this climate. It's not at all an easy path. And that's really
1: built in unjustness and unfairness of these
0: institutions. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, all the different all the different stuff. It's a it's a it's a it's a tough political cycle for for Democrats. Um, But that's the path. And it's not, you know, it's not like saying, well, all you have to do is get 75 Democratic senators. You say, well, okay, th- all you need to do is, you know, build a ladder to the moon. It, it, it's not a heroic thing. It's not a ridiculous thing. Parties pick up two or three seats. It's doable. And, you know, take all that energy and this is the path. And and that is, um, that, that's where to channel the energy. Because right now, I mean, these are all... Um, You know, they they have five seats and, you know, a cushion. And yeah, Roberts doesn't want to like completely overturn Roe, but pretty much, you know, this 15-week thing basically makes, I mean, we're going to get into all the mechanics of when you actually even know you're pregnant and, you know, all this kind of stuff, but you're not going to get, you're not going to get satisfaction uh, with the court anytime soon. So this is the path.
1: All right. So let's take a question. This is from Carl, who says, if Chief Justice Roberts believes the leaked opinion overturning Roe came from conservatives either push him to sign on or to prevent any modifications, how badly does that undermine his position on the court? Would he consider resigning at some point? This is an interesting question, too, because it kind of hooks on something we've talked about before, which is that the chief justice is not so much the chief justice anymore when you have this conservative supermajority.
0: Yeah, and he and yeah, I mean, I don't I do not expect him to resign. I mean, he may resign at some point. He's not, I mean, I think he's in his mid 60s or something like that. Um, I certainly don't expect him to resign over this. Um, I don't expect him to resign over anything, but as you say, the I it is a it's a black eye on his chief justiceship as it has been understood through history that what is unquestionably probably the most consequential and historic decision of his, you know, his, his justice, you know, Supreme Court, uh, chief justiceship will be an issue that he was in dissent. As you said, you're kind of not quite chief justice anymore, at least in, you know, you're first among equals, but still you're kind of supposed to be leading. And it's not even a case where, um, you know, it's not like this is if, uh, you know, if Justice Breyer was, was, was chief justice, well, of course, he's not going to say, well, I, I guess I got to vote to overturn Roe because I, I can't be in the minority. But clearly, he's anti-Roe. So it just, it's got to put him in an excruciating position just in terms of the, the dignity of his leadership position to end up being on the dissenting side in the most historic decision in a decision that he basically agrees on. It's, you know, and, and it's, it is so close. Um, What he wanted is so close in effect to what the five wanted. It shows that they, you know, that their feeling is kind of like, yeah, whatever, dude. You know, yeah, your chief, your chief justice, like who, who gives a crap? I mean, it, it, it's just, he, he, he seems to hold no sway with them and you know that's again i don't expect him to to resign but that's that i guarantee you that makes the process less fun
1: for him Okay. And then uh, our other question is from Andy, who says, how long is minority rule sustainable? Uh, I know it's the game plan with gerrymandering and voter suppression, but how long is it realistically sustainable? What's the tipping point? There are already more of us. What needs to happen? And This is a question I've been like kind of obsessed with, especially in regards to the court. Ever since we saw those oral arguments and it became clear, this is not going to be, you know, like getting into a cold pool one step at a time, you know, it's going to be a cannonball for people who have grown very accustomed to these various ways of life. So what is, you know, what is the tipping point that the only like kind of historical thing that springs to my mind is when, you know, way back under FDR, you know, when uh, the court kept ruling against his new deal programs and he got pissed and was like, okay, well, I'm going to Ban the court basically. And then it kind of a backing off, but kind of also just a lot of the justices resigned and he could put his own people in there and then things got rolling again.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the, it, it's one of these cases where for a long time it was thought that even though he failed at packing the court, that the justice was like, oh, okay, you know, we're going to kind of fall in line to be a little more cooperative. But in fact, Many years later, when historians were able to go back and look at the history of the different decisions, they had act, th- th- there's a, there's a decision called Caroline a footnote in a decision called Caroline Products, which basically overruled uh, or, or or kind of started the overruling of a lot of pro laissez faire precedence from the beginning of the 20th century and what beca- what became clear later on was that they had started to make that move before the court packing thing actually started so it's a little more complex but in any case um on the big question i don't know it's it, it you know it it it's very complex because you know are there more of us us you know uh The only thing we have that are truly national elections, presidential elections, it kind of does seem that way. You know, we know the history of, you know, Republican hasn't, the only time Republican has gotten the most votes in a presidential election going back uh, um, more than 30 years is uh, 2004. That's pretty telling, but it's still pretty close, right? It's pretty close. Um, And uh, we don't, as Republicans love to say now, we don't live in exactly a democracy right we have sets of rules and you kind of have democratic elections within those sets of rules and they don't always uh get you to you know the result that if you had a plebiscite the most people would have agreed to and so if it's close it can go on for a long time because you get to kind of fundamental issues of You know how close is it, and how and how central are the issues that are being held up, and how strongly do those people feel about them? Um, And is there a basic kind of crisis of legitimacy? And if there is a crisis of legitimacy, who's gonna who's gonna do what? Right at a certain point, the whole system exists because the overwhelming percentage of the population agrees to operate within it and not resort to force in a civil context. Um, so I think the answer is, is that if it's close, it can go on for a long time. You know, and, and it's the kind of thing where, um, you know, if it were a kind of thing where like, you know, a Republican president hadn't gotten more than like 30% of the vote, in 30 years, and they keep getting put in. That's, 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 that's a different thing, but it's close, right? Um, and uh, so I, 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 th- I think it can go on for a long time.
1: A thing that's interesting is um, there was this piece actually from last year in the New York Times that kind of got re-upped yesterday among everything, and it was about the connection between backsliding democracies and the rollback of abortion rights. And it was interesting because... If you have to think about it, that makes sense. You know, when when would you think women's rights would get clawed back, right? It's like within the creep of authoritarianism. But what's really interesting is uh, since 2000, per this article, only three countries have rolled back access to abortion, and that's Nicaragua, Poland, and the United States. And in every case, it's happened amid this like hyper-partisan fight over the high courts in the country. And it's interesting. I mean, it's kind of just part of the trend of our institutions are increasingly favoring, you know, know, minoritarian rule.
0: I have no idea what um, what the situation is in Hungary, but I'm curious what the what the reproductive rights situation is in Hungary, because that's another kind of big democratic backslide uh, country. And it's democratic backsliding with a strong, you know, sort of right wing traditionalist Cultural traditionalist thing, so I would kind of uh, I would have expected there would have been backs, but I just I I don't not up on that. Um, yeah, I mean I know I there's think- been a number of countries like Ireland, you know, a number of countries where there's you know obviously uh, moves in the opposite direction. Um, it's 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 an interesting thing, you know. The U.S. is you know there there are there are a lot of ways that the U.S. is just pretty different from countries that it is often classed with. And by that, I mean, you know, the the big Western European industrial democracies, Japan, you know, Australia, Canada, all these, you know, they're different. It's, it's, and uh, in some ways that, that, you know, uh, I think we can all feel great about in other ways that are, you know, could, you know, we could, we could up our game a bit.
1: The other piece that I think just does play into this question is the fact and plays into how Democrats react to this is that it has been a slow, inexorable march for Republicans to get to this victory on Roe. And in a lot of ways, they've been aided aided by our institutions that favor the minority. You know, there's I mean, there's no way around that when all all, but one of the justices who have joined this majority opinion were, you know, appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. All of them were confirmed by a Senate that senators that represented fewer people than the ones who voted against them, you know, all of that. But there's also just the laser focus on the state level that Democrats haven't done, which is like how you get in place legislatures that will pass this crazy legislation that, you know, gets up to the court and all of that. And, you know, There's a piece of that that is just not cheating, not gerrymandering, just having a different political focus that has now really paid off. And that is what I think is kind of hardest. That piece of it is hardest to reckon with now because that was a lot of work and they kind of got all their wins and now they have all their people in place and now they can gerrymander and make sure that those wins are solidified forever. And that's a part that is harder for me to grapple with than say, you know, passing federal legislation, because that is, even though Democrats are still disadvantaged on the national level, for sure, it, like you say, it's close enough that you can feel pretty confident that Democrats will, I mean, they're in power now, but you know what I mean, that they would get in power again. Mm -hmm. But in these lower levels, I mean, I don't know what you do, because unless there's some kind of over real, like court intervention that like knocks down the gerrymandering or something because they're just really entrenched.
0: Well, one one thing to keep in mind and it's 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 it has been a a kind of a received wisdom over the last 15 years or so that Democrats just got lazy and Republicans took over the states and all these terrible things have come from it. Um, you know, they weren't paying attention to this, they weren't paying attention to that, and there is a significant amount of truth in that. But but There is a reason historically why, um, not progressive in our current sense of the word, but more progressive political movements in the United States have always looked to the federal government. Always. And the reason is that there are basic structural and sociological reasons why conservative elites tend to dominate the state governments. They just do. Not always, not every time, but in general, they just do. And so for more than a century, it has been key to, again, in the most expansive sense of the word, you know, progressive political movements of all stripes that you got to operate at the federal level because there are structural advantages at the federal level that um, more egalitarian, more progressive political forces can kind of, you know, get the commanding heights and and overrule the state elites, you know, state conservative, uh, uh, conservative elites controlling governments at, at the state and um, at the state and local level. One of those reasons, if you get really deep into the sociology, is that in a lot of ways, for all of our talk about town halls and grassroots and all that kind of stuff, that the more local you get, the more you tend to have an equation between social and economic power and political power, right? Um, The big cheese in town, that person, you know, yeah, everybody's got a vote, but that person really kind of calls the shots. And uh, that is, there's a lot of reasons why that's harder to pull off at the federal level. So there's a reason why, you know, uh, conservatives have been talking about federalism and state, you know, not just state rights in the kind of a really scary sense, but just federalism and decentralization and, you know, moving stuff back to the states and stuff. Um the the point is it's not just cuz democrats got lazy. There are uh progressive egalitarian political power has for ages in the United States in some ways always they need to they need to operate at the federal government because that's what that's where their advantages are right in any case i guess that's about it we've we've covered we've we've we have produced a lot of quality content even though um not with not about the the most um the most happy news. Uh, but remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off with the promo code TPM, Grady's gradyscoldbrew.com. And I guess that's it. We'll be back next week.
1: All right. See you next week. Later.